Welcome to the Sex, God, and Chaos podcast, a conversation built to help you address the mess, connect the dots, and defeat addiction. Doing your work matters because if nothing changes, then nothing changes. Life is tough and we're here to help. I'm your host, Ben Derrick, and as always, I'll be joined by Roan Hunter. Let's jump right in. Roan, another day another dollar is that how that works yeah because we're just we're rolling the money the money's rolling in off this podcast yeah right? let's not start this with a lie <laughs> yeah. you know nobody's gonna believe us but the truth is no matter what it's paying <laughs> yeah. it is helping at least us it's helping me sitting in these conversations with some really smart people that have done a ton of work and this episode we're actually bringing in your wife who everyone knows is <laughs> The, the strength of this relationship. Oh, there's there's no doubt. Um, uh, you know, it's funny. I always say, you know, to our pod, it's the Sex, God, and Chaos podcast with Ronan and Eva Hunter, hosted by Ben Derrick. And it's really more the Ronan and Ben podcast. Yes. And, and Eva is the special guest on her own podcast. <laughs> yeah. How, how does that, that, that work? That is a well-boundaried person that right she there. she is. Oh, gosh. <laughs> yes. There's no doubt. So we brought her into the studio, recorded a conversation a little while back, uh, talking about just what it's like to be in relationship with someone who is involved with sexual brokenness. We're careful with that term addiction, uh, as we can discover later. We'll talk about that later. But we really wanted to get her point of view and her perspective on the process and a lot of this originated in people reaching out saying, hey, can you talk about it? Look at how smart we are. We're like, no, we can't, but we know someone who will, right? So we bring Eva in. She does a great job in, in this conversation. And uh, you guys actually do some back and forth, which is cool. you know. Uh, but she actually tells y'all's story. I love how Southern that sounds. Mm, mm, y'all's mm. story from her point of view, which is cool to see. Oh, yeah. And, you know, the thing, certainly, um, you know, we work together and, um, you know, it's just, it's so cool to be able to, man, I, just to watch her work with partners. Um, I mean, because we sit with, you know, the, the couple as a couple, uh, we split up and all that is just part of our process. Um, but, but just watching her work, um, with these, with these spouses, um, it, it's just pretty amazing, uh, because I've gotten to see the full circle, right. From mm. where she was <laughs> yeah. on day one, right. You know, D-Day, D-Day, D-Day. And then, um, man, uh, where, where she is, where we are today, it's, yeah, it's not much better than that. Yeah. So buckle up everyone. Eva's here having a conversation with the two of us about how it feels to be on the receiving end of betrayal. Mm. All right, so here we are, Ron, another episode. This is actually working. Everything's working. Yeah. <laughs> well, TBD for you, I don't know, your age. Uh, but at least the podcast is working. Yeah. Uh, is, is this like, are we using eight-track tape? Uh, recording or v VHS tapes. What are we doing here? Dude, yeah. you cracked me up so hard. You're like, yeah, just, you know, look in the yellow pages. And I I'm did like, say that. <laughs> that was, that was, uh, I, that, that, that certainly aged me. Yeah, it did quick. Yeah. And you realized it quickly. So I, uh, I, I did go, I, I corrected, I went internet. 
Yeah. 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 Well, did I say Rolodex? You didn't correct fast (laughs) enough. (laughs) Oh man. So, you know, something else that ages you, uh, is when people see how young your wife looks. That's, that's something else that ages you. It's like, I, people have asked is like, it's, is that your daughter? Yeah. (laughs) How does that make you feel? Gosh, you know, she is my trophy wife. Yeah, uh, exactly. You know, the, I always say the Baptists don't know what to do with me because I'm the I'm the husband of one wife twice, if you know our story. Yeah, that is fantastic. <laughs> so I she's love, my trophy wife. I love when you guys say that your divorce didn't work out. <laughs> I love so that. Funny. Yeah, that's quite a shift. So Eva, you are um you are in the studio today uh to bring some sanity and perspective (laughs) yes some professionalism to this whole endeavor yeah i mean we're not committing to it long term but we're glad you're here today oh (laughs) thanks for having me um it's really hard not to laugh out loud at you two (laughs) yeah well i just i said the other day like Roan lights the fires and then I put them out and that's a full-time job. Oh yeah. I, I always say I, I have to have handlers. Uh, Eva's my main handler and <laughs> yeah, Ben's a handler too. Yeah. 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 So it takes a village. The topic today uh, is actually something that you not only do you have experience personally with, but you work with it all the time. And it's something that our listeners have actually reached out uh, not through the yellow pages uh, digitally, which I know blows Ron's mind. But our What's listeners, that? yeah, our listeners reached out and said, "Hey, can we have more conversation about what it's like to be the partner of someone who is acting out sexually? That experience, because uh, you know, thankfully, there's a lot of work being done with folks who are sexually broken, uh, but there's ramifications. Uh, an episode we recorded with Jim Crest talks about the ripples. I mean, there's all mm-hmm. sorts of ways to talk about this, but." The fallout of sexual brokenness doesn't just impact the person, it impacts the people around the person. And you're here today to kind of help us wrap our mind around what what that's like. Yes, um, it has lots of areas that it impacts in the partner's life. Um, you know, I'll just start if, if I'll just jump in. Please, and, yeah. um, you know, the first thing that comes to my mind is uh, discovery trauma. Well, so all of these different ways, today it's now, um, the, the word is betrayal trauma. So that's kind of the overarching um, term. However, there's so much that goes into uh, defining what is betrayal trauma. And um, the first one for me that comes to mind is discovery trauma. It's uh, the day that you, that the partner uh was able to really see what was happening. Um, she may have discovered it on her own, uh, on, on through the inter- through her computer, uh, the home computer, or, or on his phone, a text or something. Now she may have had a lot of red flags all along the way, but this day it is totally confirmed. I know something is going on. You know, we had Nate Larkin on one of our episodes, and and Nate. Uh, cited that uh, four out of five, um, uh, the way the way that it gets uh, revealed is uh, four out of five times uh, it is discovered. Uh, it somebody gets caught, um, and so that's know. what sends yes. them to, to intervention, some form of help. Is yeah. that the partner discovers that's right, and an ultimatum is given. Yeah, yeah, right. In my case. Um, I had a lot of red flags along the way. Uh, a discovery happened uh, seven years into our marriage, 
And we had dated for uh, four or five years before that, uh, starting at age 15. And so I felt like I knew this man. However, each time I would confront things that I saw, and it may be, you know, it was nothing really uh, overt. It was more covert, uh, you know, maybe a, a, a looking uh, at other women in public or being a little overly friendly uh, to uh, someone, to another woman, that I would address things like that, uh, but run, but it always got turned back on me that something was wrong with me. Yeah. I was jealous. We or, call that we call that gaslighting. Yes, it's yeah. gaslighting. That's what gaslighting is. Mm-hmm. So I had a lot of red flags, but they were were not confirmed until the day that Roan actually told me. Um, I just asked the question, "What's wrong? You seem really down." And he just came out with it and said, I have a problem with pornography. So I didn't catch him, but that was my D-Day. That was my discovery day that, wow, on one hand, it validated me. And on the other hand, it traumatized me greatly uh, to the point where I packed up our little boys. And we were living in Georgia at the time in Atlanta, and I drove home to Mississippi. So that was my discovery day. Uh, And it is rare quite honestly, that someone actually comes out and confesses. Uh, However, I had seen things along the way. I like to think that if it's something that you can actually uh, videotape, maybe even use your iPhone, and you you know that if if I videotape this, this is something I'm seeing with my own eyes. Mm. This is a fact. It's not my fear, right? So um, that's something very tangible to, to, that for the partner to be able to visualize. If I were to take my phone out and I could actually videotape this, now I've got a fact and I'm going to live in my reality. This is my truth. And no matter if there is gaslighting going on. Mm-hmm. Um, the second thing is disclosure trauma. Once Roan did admit, uh, then we had more of a dribble disclose, disclosure he really was ready to come clean, and so every question I ask, he would answer. Now, I didn't know all the questions to ask, and the partner typically does not know all the questions to ask. But what I did ask, he, you know, told me the truth. Um, and very quickly, very soon after my discovery day, I also, even though he just told me um, that he had a problem with pornography, uh, it was about a week or two later that I then had a disclosure, a disclosure that he had also uh, been with prostitutes. He had been to massage parlors, um, escorts. And so I had that information. And I had some details because, you know, we didn't have a lot of guidance in the beginning of how to do a formal full disclosure. This was in 1990. And so he just kind of threw up all of it. It so traumatized me. Oh, my goodness. I could not get the images out of my mind. I had lots of intrusive thoughts, um, especially around the details. Uh, Every question I would ask, like I said, he would answer it with too much information. And really, the the details were what haunted me for years and years. Um, So, you know, and we're very, when we do a formal full disclosure today with a couple, we're very careful about the details, mm. uh, even though a lot of partners already have quite a bit of details. They've seen texts, they've seen words that have been shared um, to another person, uh, maybe a video, maybe a picture, things like that. 
the next way, then the partner begins to connect some of the dots like, oh my goodness, uh, during the holidays or for me personally, when I was pregnant with, with our children, he was acting out. And I, that was new information for me to, uh, to discover for myself. So there was a lot of deception, trauma, um, that all that was going on at the time. So putting those pieces together as, as we got into uh, counseling and trying to figure out what had happened, realized the level of deception that I had gone through um, in, our, in our relationship. And then another one is really now the relationship and the attachment trauma in, in between us. Uh, I became very preoccupied with what he was doing. I was very anxious. And so that attachment style, uh, preoccupied, anxious, uh, that person typically has a lot of anxiety and they address a lot of things. They don't avoid much, right? So there's a lot of uh, upheaval in the relationship. Yeah, it. you know, the title of our podcast, Sex, God, and Chaos, you know, when discovery happens, uh, it is it is really the ultimate chaos crisis in a in a marriage relationship, and uh, it was chaotic um, because uh, you know I had been using um, my drug of choice uh, in order to numb, medicate, um, deal with my emotions, my pain, my hurt. That went all the way back to childhood. And I had zero emotional regulation skills um, because I didn't deal with emotion. I just medicated it. And then after discovery, you know, Eva, uh, the partner, uh, she's emotionally dysregulated because her whole world has been turned upside down. Everything she thought she knew was not real. And so it is DEFCON 5 crisis level and it is chaos. And it was, as Eva said, in 1990, um, really n- nobody really knew how to work with this. Um, as far as working with a couple, there was some help for uh, sexual addiction, but there was nothing um, for for partners um, dealing with betrayal trauma. That term didn't even come around, um, uh, come into use, or, or anybody started working with it until around the you know, 2000s. Um. Right. And at that time in my life, um, you know, our first child was born in 1986 and our second child was born in 1988. And for the first time, I had felt really secure about myself. So the for the first time, I felt really secure um, in myself. And then having this discovery and discl- a dribble effect of disclosures now I feel really insecure, uh, really afraid, really preoccupied with the relationship, the attachment that we that we, he and I had. I thought we had. Um, of course, it wasn't what I thought. Um, so that was really it. Did a number on me, um, and it did a number on our relationship. Uh, at that point, um, when I really realized. I had enough information, I had enough facts, and I could see how I was just very dysregulated 
But I thought the only way I can regulate is to get away, is to leave, is to get out of this mess. Um, I was, I really couldn't see how I could move forward. I feel like if someone, if a, if a therapist had said to me, um, you know, what you're dealing with is betrayal trauma. You can heal from this. It, it's going to take time, a lot of talking, a lot of tears, but you really can heal. I think that would have given me hope uh, that I really could. Um, I ended up, after two years of therapy, deciding to divorce and um, became divorced. But going back to all the different traumas that that do occur, um, I would say the next one would be how the family is impacted because we ended up divorcing. Um, the, my, our children were impacted by that, as well as uh, our extended family members were impacted. Our, our little family was just really torn apart. Um, the next stage would be, they don't really go in stages. It's just kind of just a chaotic mess for sure. <laughs> but another one is uh, a, a lot of shame for the partner. Uh, and now who am I? I have identity trauma. Yeah, no, you know, like, keep going. like, um, you know, uh, what do people think of me um, now? At this point, I'm divorced, right? And I can remember thinking, "Oh my goodness, I've got to write down at a doctor's office, I'm no longer a married person. I am divorced." That created some shame for me. I would also say uh, the financial impact. There's financial trauma. Uh, in our case, the divorce, you know, we had to split assets, assets and uh, we, we lost a lifestyle that we had um, become accustomed to. Um, so that was, it had an impact on us. Uh, I, also, I mean, whatever money is spent by the acting out behaviors, that can be uh, a huge financial impact depending on the amount uh, and then for a partner to realize, wow, you've taken our income and you have used it for Ill in illegitimate ways. Uh, also, the spiritual and faith journey for the partner is very affected. For me, uh, I was just very devastated in that where has God been? Has Did God abandon me? Why didn't God protect me? Uh, as a believer, I had accepted Christ at eight years old and really thought that um, he would be there for me, that something like this would not happen to me. Uh, however, I now know, looking back 32 years later, it was something that has definitely refined me and uh, helped me know the Father uh, in more of a dependent way where I am more dependent on that relationship with him than with anybody else. And so that's really been a good thing for me. The My own personal health, it created so much anxiety. For me personally, I carry my anxiety in my gut. So I immediately lost a lot of weight, um, probably 15 pounds within just a few weeks. I couldn't eat. Um, if I did eat something, it went right through me um, with being nauseated and a lot, lot of diarrhea. Um, 
sorry if that's too much information. <laughs> Other people, no, you know, the kind of things that people don't say, but everyone experiences. Yeah, they do commercials. Yeah. There's commercials about that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, for some women, they may have panic attacks. They have a hard time breathing. It also affects. It affected my sleep. Uh, I got very little sleep for a long time. Um, so the personal health, and then the 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 thought that my goodness. Could I have an STD? One of the things I did pretty pretty early on, which was very much empowered me, and I, I recommend it to all partners, is for me personally to go and have be tested for STDs um, because I don't want to be dependent on another person to let me know whether they have an STD. I want to know for myself: Am I okay? Uh, so I did that at that time. At th- that time in 1990, um, it's right when the AIDS epidemic was coming out, and so uh, I had to go to the health department, and I had to be anonymous. They gave me a number, and that created a lot of shame for me, right? That I had that I had to go and be tested for STDs and um, be tested for AIDS. That was really awful and scary. Um, then. The impact to the partner's sexuality. Um, a lot of partners will either become uh, hyposexual, where they will absolutely shut down their sexuality, or they may become hypersexual, where they just want to feel safe at all costs. They'll abandon themselves and have sex anytime and every time the addict wants to because they're, so, they're living in so much fear. So that, you know, neither one of those are healthy, healthy yeah. right? Um, the, and then treatment trauma. Um, I, I don't know that I would really, um, I think my treatment trauma, treatment trauma is when you go to a therapist or you go to a pastor and they turn and somehow turn it back on you. They may say things like, gosh, you know, if you had just been uh, not so angry uh, or if you just had not... Um, if you just had more sex with him or been more available emotionally, this wouldn't have happened in some way blaming me. Um, that would have been treatment trauma. Yeah, I, I like the term helper trauma. Right? Yeah, because, I like that you know, too. People don't always go see a counselor. Uh, the first line of defense uh, is usually if they're part of a faith community is they're going to go see their uh, their pastor, uh, their priest. Um, and so they're they're trying to get help. And oftentimes, what they get is um, is 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 actually um, certainly not helpful, and maybe even more damaging. Yeah, that's so real. I, I love the fact that we're talking about this because yeah, even as I sit with with people, just recently had this experience where a, a individual was sharing with me that they were in one of those meetings at a pastoral level. And the imagery that this person used was awesome. It said, I, I felt like when I said this, I broke that person. I broke the pastor. <laughs> like, he had never heard this before. And uh, I was the only one that had ever spoken this out loud to, mm-hmm. to this pastor. And so there's that like silence part of it. And then there's this uh, hyper religiosity that's usually mm-hmm. visited with folks. And I think as we get to the the poles of these perspectives, it's usually an indicator that the minister themselves is probably been really, really activated and dysregulated because Mm -hmm. they've got secrets and shame. Mm -hmm. And that's not something that's talked about very much. Unfortunately, we have these uh, 
third party studies that are getting more of this out into the open. But uh, there's obviously there are ministers that are safe places, but just like with clinicians, just because they have the degree on the wall or the years of experience in an institution, it doesn't necessarily mean that they're safe. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I, I love, I know the people listening, have, a large majority have probably had this experience and there's probably a lot of freedom in hearing you guys actually give it a name. Mm-hmm. Thanks for saying mm-hmm. that. You know, uh, a, a lot of times you know, the the partner is very dysregulated and has lots of anger. Those are actually just trauma responses. It's a trauma reaction. Uh, and she will, her brain will, I say her, it could, be, it could be a him as well, but their brain will settle down eventually. It just takes a lot of time. Um, another one that comes to my mind are um, the friendships and the community impact that it has. Uh, I had a lot of really close friends in the neighborhood that we were living in. We were all stay-at-home moms. We did life together. Um, We raised our children together. And I I still remember the day that I disclosed to them what was going on in my marriage and and what I had learned. And then how I didn't feel like I fit in anymore, right, because this had not happened to them. And they didn't really know how to comfort me. They didn't have a clue. Uh, and so I got some unwanted and advice at times and uh, wanted advice also. Uh, but, uh, but, you know, my friends became really a lifeline to me, especially Ron and I did divorce. And, again, I felt, where do I fit in? Being in the community, being at church, and really having the seeing couples – and the thought going through my head, like, nobody is dealing with this. I am the only one. If you only knew what was happening to me right now, um, you know, that our our marriage is falling apart or has fallen apart. And where do I fit in? Nobody's going through like this. And the reality of it is there's a lot of people going through it. Oh, yeah. But you don't know that. <laughs> no. You do not realize that and when you're in the middle of it. Um That's why I do think it's so important for a partner to find a group of women uh, who are are trying to recover from betrayal trauma because that becomes uh, very much a lifeline to them because they get it. There may be women in the group that are further along. There's just so much wisdom in a in a group of of partners of betrayal um it's really really in a healthy group in a healthy group and there are (laughs) yes uh in a healthy group that's right because the partner can also get really triggered uh in a group if it's not healthy and uh hearing too much information um uh and then uh i would say just all the ways that a partner and there may be many many more those are just the ones that come to my mind today that uh, I know that I've been affected in those ways. Yeah, it feels like a pretty comprehensive list, but I mean, more importantly than that, it also feels very accurate. You know, (laughs) I know people listening are like, wow, I've been trying to decide which one I am, but I'm actually many at at the same time, depending on the time of day. So true. And something I've heard you say before that I'd love to dig into just a little bit deeper if we can, that there's basically a, I've heard you say there's a transfer of burden 
from one to the other. So there's a sense of freedom that often occurs from uh, the betrayer. Like, oh, wow, I've been hiding this for 20 years, and now people know, and what a relief. But the relief comes at a cost, right? So it's difficult for each party to navigate that because that sense of freedom is not mirrored by the betrayed, right? Right, exactly. No, now now the betrayed... Who the partner is in bondage with all that she's learned, he or she has learned. I mean, and it is, it, it is a terrible, terrible situation. Mm-hmm. And I think this makes the the definition of trauma make so much more sense as we describe it. You know, it's a, I, I feel a loss of control. I don't have any control here. Zero this is a negative experience. I have no control over it. I did not cross flesh lines. I did not make the decision to consume pornography for 20 years, but now I'm dealing with the ramifications. And something that we see is is very difficult from one partner to the other is this, I think we could call it maybe a gift of time uh, that mm-hmm. you've already referenced that, you know, to being able to put a time frame there, mm. this is also a little bit difficult because the rapid nature that someone wants to get better does not match the timeline of the not rapid nature of trying to process trauma. Is that fair said? Right. Yes, very much. You know, and so often the partner, she wants to see, and she does need to see a lot of actions, Mm -hmm. right? Consistent action over time and seeing her, her spouse or or boyfriend uh, really doing the work in individual therapy, going to groups, uh, becoming very becoming really honest and transparent with himself, with others, with with the partner as well. She needs to experience that. But so often, the partner is doesn't really look at all the deeper things that have happened to her. So she, mm. if I could do it over again, I would really focus more on myself. I would really just um, really buckle down and do my own self-care, figure out what is going on inside of me, how are all the ways that I'm being affected by this new information. That is a huge statement right there that I think goes, it just kind of disappears into the background, mostly because of that anxiety that you were describing, because anxiety wants to control and create a future that is manageable. So then we get into a situation where you are describing now you're trying to manage the recovery of the partner and kind of slipping into that mother role, even if accidentally, which Mm -hmm. causes a a lot of talk about being triggered. Uh, (laughs) You know, when a, a person is being treated like a man is being treated by the person he's married to as if that per- wife is his mother. Mm. Now we've got another another layer, right? Right, and, so. right. and it kept me in the, the stage of anger for so long, right? Because I, I could not tap into the deeper things inside of me. Now, a lot of that comes back to my the way I was raised. I really didn't know how to tap into those deeper feelings. I didn't know how to feel hurt. I didn't know how to feel sadness. Um, I really didn't. I mean, all I could show, all I could really feel was anger. And anger is a stage part of grief. It's part of grief. It's part of the betrayal trauma. It is going to happen. However, uh, I wish that I could have tapped into those deeper um, places inside of me, um, that I'd had uh, a therapist really ask some of those questions like, how do you feel? What's going with you? What's going on inside of you? Like, 
here's a feeling wheel, come up with some words. Um, uh, it has been so healing for me to be a part, be a part of a group of women partners. And I still am part of a group weekly, and w- yeah. weekly, and yeah. I will be for the rest of my life. Mm. It, it is life giving to me. It's where I can be authentic and transparent um, and also give back what I've been given. You know, it really is the 12-step model in, in a sense that um, um, it helps me to help others. Um, it helps me stay um, really connected with myself um, by hearing other people and where they are and giving back. You know, it's interesting Um we talk about, you know, um, on the addict side of the fence, um, you know, sex is not the problem. Porn is not the problem, right? Uh, the deeper problem is is all of the trauma, all of the pain, all of the issues that uh, that that we bring uh, to the party of marriage. Um, and and so many guys just want to focus on I want I got to stop this behavior, whatever it is. And we know that's just totally ineffective uh, over the long run. And on the partner side of the fence, it's like the focus becomes on the addict and his recovery and what he's doing. And we know that over the long run, that's just not sustainable. And it's, as Eva is saying, it's that deeper work that both people have to do in order to heal, certainly individually, because that's going to happen first, and and then hopefully the the relationship but it's that the the focus is uh we we, we're focusing on the wrong things Mm. if we want to heal doesn't that happen so frequently i think you see the question asked from the betrayed spouse or or in the relationship how could you do this and the first answers that come out are often the gaslighting the blaming Mm -hmm. you know we're we're not having sex enough Mm -hmm. and all that and everybody knows that answer is just total garbage, you know, mm-hmm. and then over time just to see that partner say, I don't, I don't know. You know, I, I love to see that softening in this stage of the recovery where the partner says, I don't, I don't know how, how or why I'm doing this, but then to be able to offer a legitimate answer to that betrayed spouse, like here are some of the things, although these choices were mine, here are some of the things that made this choice seem like the way to make it better. Mm -hmm. Those answers, I think, take that anxiety over time, like, okay, now we're discovering, speaking of discovery, Mm -hmm. now we're discovering the things that led to this mess, that led to this chaos, and I would assume that from the betrayed side, when you hear those legitimate explanations that go back to history, Mm -hmm. there's some of that anxiety that turns down, maybe not from an eight to a three, but it right. takes you down enough to give you that headroom uh, in your own window of tolerance to be able to do some of that work that you're talking about. Yes, I mean, um, well, I'll just jump into it for a minute. It helped me to understand myself, to know myself. Like what had set me up to marry someone who really wasn't showing up in the relationship? And why was I okay with that? Like I didn't really, he he didn't share on in, in intimate ways. He didn't really let me know what was going on with him. I had to um, do a lot of mind reading <laughs> and and kind of. She take, was good at it. Too. Well, oh I could I, I could just walk into the room and I would know if he was upset about something. Who knew? I, I didn't know what it was. 
um, you know, uh, his, at that time in his life, of Ron's life, he was um, very uh, emotionally disengaged. And why was I okay with that? Right? Mm. What was that in me that, that, that I would accept that? That I wasn't worthy enough to have someone that really shows up in a relationship? Right? However, that was very familiar to me mm. from what I grew up in. Um, someone who was very emotionally disengaged. So, uh, and w- w- thinking that I had what it took to to make him into the man I wanted him to be. Mm. <laughs> you know, that's, yeah. that's the clinical term for that uh, is called a woman. You know, you've heard it a lot. You've heard it a lot. I've heard this a lot. Uh, gosh, you know, he's a diamond in the rough. He just needs a good woman. And I'm like, yes, why did I settle for that? What's up with that? Now, today, people that know Roan, he's a completely different person from the man that I married. Mm. Like I said, Roan was very quiet. He was n- not the outspoken person that he is today. <laughs> That's uh, a little hard to imagine. Actually. Yeah. He was, he was very quiet. He was, um, very, uh, he was a thinker way too much. He thought way too much and got up in his head and it didn't really come out, mm. but I accepted that. Yeah. That's and what a, was it? That's Why? A good match. Yeah. Why? Why? It's Why? a beautiful question to ask over your mm. own story, isn't it? Why? Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yes. Yeah. You know, we we talk about it. I think we uh, have it in the book. But, you know, the idea of, you know, water rises to its own level, right? Uh, Brokenness meets brokenness. My brokenness looked different than Eva's brokenness. But we're going to marry someone that's that's equally broken um, when it comes to intimacy. And that doesn't mean sex. You know, we we talk about, um, you know, the root of all this is just it's an intimacy disorder, Neither one of us knew how to show up in the no, relationship. No, and I have to say, I mean, I was very uncomfortable with deeper emotions. I was, you know. I'm I'm either a six uh, or a seven on the Enneagram. I'm not sure um, exactly which one, but I really connect a lot with the seven uh, because I didn't do emotion, right? I, I knew how to present that I had it all together. I kind of lived that out. Mm. Yeah, well, you got trained well in growing up in the home you grew up in, right? Mm -hmm. It was all about, you know, we had to look good, act right, be right. Um, And that's just called growing up in a um, a Baptist home, I think. Mm -hmm. Not a children's home, but, yeah, (laughs) going to a Baptist church. Yeah, Yeah. I love the Mm -hmm. fact you're bringing the Enneagram into this as well because it's just one of those modes of self-discovery. It's not Mm -hmm. the only one, but it helps... And especially when it comes to feelings, I think that's the bread and butter of the Enneagram. Like, how do you interact with feelings? And then it takes it to the relational Mm -hmm. level of how does that affect your relationships? And I kind of have this foundational belief that the ultra conservative religious home will turn every number into a six at some point. Oh, you know, that's just like, totally. It's a six factor. <laughs> it, you know? It's called discipleship. Yeah, we yeah. call it discipleship. You know, I'm, I'm very loyal and I'm very afraid. Exactly. <laughs> that, exactly. That is the result of religion. Exactly. So uh, I think a lot of people, thankfully today, are learning how to embrace the way that God has built yeah. them, and uh, you know, not not to divorce ourselves from our families of origin, but to realize. Those the efforts of those people had had effect. Oh yeah, because you have to understand too. At that time, in the seventies and eighties, you know John Wayne. 
Mm. John Wayne, and I don't think he showed much emotion. Clint Eastwood. Yeah. Clint Eastwood. Those, oh, man. You know, so. My hero. <laughs> the Marlboro Man. Yeah. Yes, exactly. That's right. That's right. So that, the strong, silent type. Mm, yeah, yeah exactly. The strong, silent, silent type. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's kind of what we, were, what we were striving for. But I think, you know, one word that we've tried to make sure that this podcast has contained, and you brought it up earlier in this episode, is hope. That there is hope yeah. and identification. It, this work cannot just be cognitive. Uh, that's that's not going to get us down the road very far. But it is helpful to understand, to be able to categorize. Like there, there are multiple things going on here at one time, and mm-hmm. the fact that you are in this, and we can call it a stage. Even that is hopeful because a stage has an end, and we will move to another stage. Exactly, uh, and keeps us from well, skip. You know, it Mm. isn't like a betrayal buffet, like, oh, well, that sounds good. I'll have some of that. I'm going to skip that. Like you, you must go through these things in their time and they're Mm -hmm. not sequential and they overlap, but to be able to embrace that and be comfortable with emotion, listen to you guys talk though. Uh, it brings me hope because there was a huge level of challenge and you guys have been very open about your story. Mm -hmm. Like uh, Ron, you say, just Google me and you'll find my story, which is that's terrifying. Um, but there was such, there was a large mountain to climb, not only for the coupleship, but also for you two as individuals. Right. And here you sit. Yeah. You sit. That's awesome. And we have not arrived. Don't don't get me wrong. <laughs> Speak for yourself. Maybe Ron has. Yeah. Maybe Ron has. Well, but you I said did. he had changed completely. Yeah, what yeah. else do you well, want? Yeah. I'm good. But I, yeah. you know what I mean. I mean, it's such a, the sanctification process. Yes. Is lifelong. And that's why I, I don't ever want to feel like I've gotten to where uh, I'm, I've arrived. I, I feel like, you know, every year I have a new, new awareness about myself. Yeah. Oh, you man, know? that is awesome. That's hopeful. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. And, you know, marriage is, is a, it's a difficult proposition from the get-go. Uh, even, like, just without all of, like, you know, what even I went through and dealing with that, uh, marriage is hard. Um, however, uh, if we do the work, uh, and we are intentional, uh, and we begin to figure out what it means to be truly connected, truly intimate with one another, man, that that's really what God intended. Um, not so much what we see today, uh, and, you know, um, you know, marriage rates are dropping and, um, you know, divorce rates are rising and, um, but the, at the same time, it's like, you know, if two people are willing uh, to do the work and two pe- people are willing to begin to show up uh, uh, at the show up place in the relationship, and that doesn't happen magically, um, you, you, you've got to begin to figure out uh, it's that inward journey. I've got to begin to understand me. I've got to understand how did I get here um, and, and how these things that have happened in my life have played out. So let's uh, wrap. We're running short on time. So let's wrap the episode up this way. If you don't mind, I'd like to throw it back to you, Eva. Um, And this is a situation that you're in professionally a lot. So Mm -hmm. I'm sure this won't be a difficult question to ask, but just to give some hope to that betrayed partner. um, If they're like in the initial shock, phase one, step one, pull the fire alarm, Mm -hmm. something centering that you could gift them if they're listening to this today, like, hey, let's do this. Let's give this a shot. What what advice would you give? 
I would say the first step would be to to find a therapist, really, just for herself, right? Yeah. Um, that would be my first thing. Um, and then with the therapist, begin, first of all, uh, asking herself the question with a therapist, like, what do I need in order to feel safe? How can I create safety for myself? Mm. Yeah, what a critical first step. And one that probably 90% of the time is skipped. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's so true. Yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. Well, thanks for being with us and and opening up to share just your experience. And I'm eager to have more of these kinds of conversations because, honestly, you're a better companion than Rome. So, (laughs) uh, but uh, but, uh, thanks for your time today. (laughs) Thank you for having me. To learn more about what you've heard today and to engage with the Sex, God, and Chaos team, visit sexgodchaos.com. Thank you.